Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 29, mostly working from home, full of politics and policy talk, job cuts and setbacks, more concerns about the recovery, and businesses and education finding their way back, Jason. We talked a lot about that. Also, how to forge better paths to getting back. Yeah, the getting back and the better paths, I feel like, really stuck with us this Mm -hmm. week because we had a lot of smart thinkers joining us to underscore the fact that things are going to be different. They're already different. And in fact, we caught up with the author of a new book. Her name is Mael Gavay. The book, Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It, a really, really important subject. Absolutely. Plus... One thing I've learned is that in crisis... That's a great opportunity to learn and grow, and you have to lean into it. Whole Foods Market CEO and co-founder John Mackey, he too has a book out, Conscious Leadership. So staying with this theme, it's all about elevating business through humanity. And then we also caught up with PBS President and CEO Paula Kerger. Man, they are getting ready to celebrate a big anniversary. But first, let's take you to the cover story. It's all about testing where we've been, where we're going. Check it out with Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. We set out to do this story because, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about vaccines and um, the, the hope that they could, the hope that they can get us out of this mess, right? And give us back uh, a semblance of the life we had before the virus. And what we what we also have started to realize was was that you know if we actually got our act together and got um, some abilities to do accurate fast testing, there's a way to actually have a semblance of normalcy again before that vaccine, which still could be a ways off. And that was sort of what um, Michelle and her co-author Drake Bennett dove into for this week's cover story. It was sort of like. What exactly, how close to having a decent, fast test are we exactly? And, you know, what what implications could that have? I mean, I want to go to restaurants and send my kid back to school and all those great things. And, like, what, you know, is there a version of reality that might look like that? And and how do we get there, like, now? And, Michelle, why don't you pick it up there and, and tell us how close to a version of reality like that are we? So we do see that there is ways where things can happen somewhat in a semblance of normalcy, right? Any of these sports events that we're watching, we can see that they are on top of it. They know who's positive. They know how to knock it down, you know, put everybody under quarantine and whatnot and keep it under control. The question is, is how do you do that for an entire country of 330 million people? And the answer is that it is theoretically possible but it is going to take a huge amount of effort on behalf of our government, on behalf of the diagnostic test makers who are now starting to bring all these very cool new products to the market, and honestly, on behalf of Americans, people who maybe don't want to wear masks, but if you get a positive test, you've got to stay home. Michelle, this is about seeing the spread of the virus, you know, in anything close to real time. This is what we're shooting for, right? I do wonder, though, with everybody so obsessed and focused on getting a vaccine, rightfully so, you know, do we have the wherewithal among regulators, the FDA, and then the companies that need to produce these things, you know, in mass quantities? There is absolutely going to be a huge lift when it comes to this. The The industry that's working on it, of course, 
they this is what they do and that's what the story goes into and you know Joel and the, uh, and Drake Bennett what a fabulous writer he is um did a really great job in making sure that we it, it not only looked at what is happening here but what also has to happen in order for it to come to fruition i don't i personally don't think that people are going to are going to not do it like i think there's questions about whether or not people will get vaccinated but if there were tests available, I think the vast majority of Americans would take one as often as we give it to them. So the industry, I think, is going to do it. The question is, is how cheap can it be and how can we make it available to everybody who needs it in order to make a difference with the amount of virus we have in the country? And that's the point. And, and Michelle, let's, let, I want to dwell on sort of the technical aspects of what these rapid COVID tests look like. They're not the same thing as, you know, putting a swab up your nose, right? Like the whole point of this is that actually there's a there's a different way that we could be testing and that that's what allows us to do it cheaper, better, faster. What what is what are the mechanics of the, this testing look like? Well the beauty of this story actually is that it looked broadly across all the different technologies that we're talking about. And one of the things that I was most frustrated about in terms of how people have been covering testing generally, is that there is kind of this Pollyanna-ish approach of if we were just willing to make the effort, we could do it. And in fact, that's not the case. When it comes to what you're talking about, uh, Jason, I think you're talking about the lateral flow tests, which are like the pregnancy tests. And in fact, what we have right now, you still do need to do a nasal swab. But the thing is, you could do it yourself. You know, you put it up your nose. That's what Abbott's Binex now is. You put it up your nose, you stick it into the pregnancy test, you squeeze a little bit of buffer on it, and which is a liquid, and then that just carries that little viral, you know, the, the genetics from what's inside your nose, it carries it along this little strip. And if there's antigens, essentially the virus, in that sample that you took, it carries it down that pathway towards the, towards the, um, towards the antibodies that would normally be fighting a virus if it was in your body, but they've instead just attached it to this strip. And if those two things click together, a little flag pops up, a little nanoparticle of gold appears, and then you know you're positive. And that was Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Coming up, more on the virus from someone who looks at it through two lenses as a doctor and also head of a school. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Carol, so many headlines when it came to COVID-19 this week. President Trump and the First Lady testing positive for the coronavirus. This after one of their top aides, Hope Hicks, was confirmed positive as well. You saw that news first via Bloomberg News. Global confirmed deaths topping 1 million. London at a tipping point because of an uptick in cases. And we also saw an increase in cases in parts of New York City. So we turned to one of our experts, several experts across the week. But this particular guy, Dr. Sandro Galea, he's the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. He talked about that public health aspect and how important it is. And we should note, we talked to Dr. Galea earlier in the week before that positive test was revealed on the part of the president. We as a university have been reopening cautiously, carefully, with a lot of testing, a lot of uh, contact tracing, a lot of isolation as needed, and really working hard to keep the community safe while also working on our mission and uh, continuing teaching and continuing our research. It's a tough balance. I think it's a tough balance for everybody, and and it's part of, I think, a broader societal place where we are at, where we are recognizing that we are living with COVID for some time now, and, uh, and, and we cannot afford to keep 
our world slow down because there are important things that we have to do. And so give us a sense of that balance, Dr. Galea. Like, what is something where you feel like you've found it in terms of either staffing or class size or yeah. doing labs? Like, give us an example of where you feel like, okay, well, this, this feels about as good as we uh-huh. can get. <laughs> well, Jason, I think... Uh, I, I don't think I feel confident telling you anything is as good as it, yeah. as it can be. I think I think everything is a work in progress. But you know, yeah. let's talk a little bit about what we're doing. So, we as a university are testing people extensively. We have about five to six thousand tests a day happening. So students are tested multiple times a week. Uh, we have uh, a, a lot of people who are involved both in the testing, but then also if somebody tests positive and the contact tracing to see who they've been in contact with, right? So the idea is, and we had discussed this before in our previous yeah. conversations, the idea with testing is that you catch a case early so that it does not become a cluster that does not then continue the epidemic. So you find a case, you do contact tracing, you find the people around that case, you quarantine those people and you isolate the case. And of course, all of that is superimposed over a very strict regimen of building hygiene. And by that, I mean ventilation in the building, wiping down surfaces, a very strong public campaign for people to remain safe, wearing masks, making sure that people are not in if they're sick, and every day doing symptom screens for everybody. So it really is a fairly comprehensive effort. And it is, in some respects, I think the challenge is that it's a comprehensive effort that has to happen now and has to keep happening really for weeks and months until there is a definitive vaccine for COVID. Talk to me about contact tracing, because I feel like we are getting very mixed results, mixed reviews in terms of people essentially saying, yep, not going to cooperate. It's voluntary. I'm not going to tell you uh, either I don't want to get in trouble because I was at a party or I feel like it's an invasion of my privacy. How do you manage that? Well, in some respects, I think it's easier to manage that within a a closed system of yeah. one institution versus in the general population, right? So in our, in, our, in our system, we have been very clear that this is part of the cost of citizenship. If you're, if you're going to be part of the community, you have a responsibility to work towards keeping others safe. And part of that responsibility is, if you test positive, is that you talk to the contact tracers and you tell them who you've been in contact with so that they can reach out to those people and make sure we keep them safe as well. It's harder to do that in the general population. There's been a lot of reports about 50% of people in general population answer and talk to contact tracers. But that's, that's in the general population where I think there isn't as much of a sense of mm. shared responsibility for one another. There should be. I'm just reflecting on probably what's going yeah. on out there. Yeah, no, that's a big part of it. I mean, Jason, you and I have talked about it. I know when my daughter got together with some classmates at the end of the summer and we had kind of quarantined her for months, you know, we as families went into it saying, okay, what have you been doing? Who's getting tested? You know, like, there was this sense of community to make sure everybody stayed safe. And I feel like, you know, there, not everybody's on the same page with that. Also, to be fair, and Dr. Galeo, you understand this, not everybody can be on the same page. There are some people that, you know, if they don't go to work, they don't get paid and it. it they're in a tougher predicament. And I just, you know, I just... Well, uh, well I think, I mean, I mean, this is why, this is why, Carol, I think the reopening is so important. I think it's, uh, you know, the data are very clear, for example, that... Uh, your chances of being able to work from home are much higher if you're in the top 25% uh, 
uh, quartile of, of income. So right. people who, are, who, are, who have to go to work are people who are already making less income. We know that that overlaps with race, right? We know that uh, the, the disproportionate burden of COVID in many respects was because we exposed people with low income, people of color often, to work before we understood how COVID works. But the, the economic shutdown, I feel like the public conversation about the economic slowdown hasn't been fair because to be to be frank it's been it's been directed by people whose livelihoods are not really at risk from economic slowdown because they can work from home but the fact is more than half the population cannot work from home so if we if we if we say if we take the the premise that well we should reduce the risk of covid at all costs well do we really mean at all costs or do we mean at all costs to somebody else right and i think we need to be honest with that And, and 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 economic slowdowns hurt people who are already at the low end of making income. And that is something that we as a society have a responsibility to try to avoid as much as possible. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, also the author of the book, Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. So let's talk about the public's health, uh, Dr. Galea. What can we be doing before we get to the other side of this? What should we be doing to ensure that we don't lose sight of these inequalities that have been laid bare by this pandemic? Well, Jason, I think what the pandemic has shown us, and I like your use of the term laid bare, it has shown us the inequalities that existed already before the pandemic. The country is really shaped by deep socioeconomic inequalities and deep racial inequalities. And those inequalities have health analogs, just like we have haves and have nots. We have health haves and have nots around those two axes. Now, the, the pandemic reveal that we have uh, black Americans have two and a half times greater risk of dying during COVID than white Americans. And that is largely due to the double whammy of one greater burden of disease among that black Americans had compared to white Americans. And number two, that a disproportionate number of them work in what we've came to call sort of essential work, frontline work, work that exposed them to getting COVID. So to my mind, what COVID is now letting us see what was already there for us to see had we looked for it. And that's Dr. Sandro Galea. He's also the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. Love catching up with him because I feel like he twists the prism just a bit for Mm -hmm. us, Carol, getting us beyond the headlines and to really understand some of the underlying economic effects that we need to be concerned about. So, Jason, he's talking about realignment. So, too, is our next guest. We'll hear about Trampled by Unicorns. It's a new book about big tech's empathy problem. We'll talk with the author. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, I like to think there was a little bit more humanity in a lot of our conversations this week. We talked a lot about economics and business, but also talked about things including empathy. Yeah, we did. And that more human element certainly came through with one of our guests. We caught up with global tech executive Mayel Gove. She's got a new book out, Jason, Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. I really wanted to have two really big conversations. I want to have a conversation about where we are right now because I felt like a lot of what I was reading in the media uh, or in books was extremely one-sided. It was usually um, saying either tech is amazing or tech is horrible. And I was reading all of that and saying, no, there's some good, there's some bad, and there's some ugly, and I'd like us to have a really exhaustive view on where do we stand, what are the good things that happen, and what are the things we need to fix, and really try to go to the, the core of why we have a deficit of empathy in the tech ecosystem. 
And then once we uh, we align on how we got where we are and why um, and 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 why we are where we are, uh, then I wanted to really focus on solutions. I'm a I'm a solution oriented person. Right. I'm very optimistic in general, and I wanted to. Uh, have a conversation about what we can do. And we, being a very broad we, like we, the the tech executives, the tech employees, that uh, the group I belong to, uh, having worked in tech for 15 years, but we as also as users, we as investors, we as governments and regulators, and I thought that there was a role for every one of us to play in really making tech um, a, an instrument to advance humanity even more than it has been so far. So let's talk about the deficit, if we can, the starting point, because, you know, what you point out in this book, we have all really seen, I feel like, come to the fore in a troubling way, especially over the past few years, even before I think we entered into this broader social and societal reckoning around inequality. We knew there was a problem in tech. How did we get here? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think that we got here through a, a complex set of um, of things related to tech. I think uh, tech is very insular from a cultural perspective with very strong tribal myths. I talk in my book about uh, many of them. Uh, one of them is what I call the Steve Jobs syndrome. Uh, this idea that uh, to be a genius, you somehow have to be a jerk, like the two are kind of really related. Uh, this idea that technology is neutral, um, the the myth of perfect meritocracy, like if you raise throughout the ranks of technology, it's because you're that good at your job. And if you're not, this is because you're not that good at your job. And so that really created an industry which uh, in many aspects is very closed um, and has a hard time because of a lack of diversity, has a hard time to be empathetic to the rest of the world. And when you're not empathetic, it's, it becomes hard for you to really understand the impact that you're having on the world. So that's one very strong, uh, very strong issue. The second one I've just mentioned it is the lack of diversity. Yeah. Uh, mm. Women represent less than a third of management uh, and tech roles in big tech uh, and racial minorities in general, less than 10% of management. Uh, and way less than 10% in techs, so tech tech jobs. And then I think the last one is um, what I would call a lack of accountability. Um, and it's because we, we as, as tech people, we believe so strongly that we were on, our pa- on the path to change the world that if there were some bumps on the road, if there were some mistakes made, it didn't really matter because we were working towards the greater good. And I think because of that, and then also the fact that the regulator didn't always understand what it is that we were doing, and I think the the users got really uh, amazed by all the free services that they get that, that they got. I think the combination of all of that created this environment where uh, tech companies could pretty much do anything they wanted without having to really be accountable. And that's obviously changing now. But I think if you combine this cultural insularity, the lack of diversity and the lack of accountability, you end up where we are right now. So somebody like a Mark Zuckerberg, good, bad, how do you see him? Um, I think every person has some good and some bad. I think he's clearly a business uh, business genius and he's really strong at building a one-in-a-lifetime company. Uh, I think uh, to use the, the wording that one of my previous company, BCG, 
use, there may be some areas for improvement mm. around empathy and connection to people. <laughs> And that's Mayel Gavay. Her new book, Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem, How to Fix It, really a key part of our theme this week, Carol, because we're all wrestling with where we go from here. Mm. We know we as a society, we as individuals are changed by what we have seen and experienced through this pandemic and through a lot of the things going on in our world. It's going to change how we work. You're right, Jason. And folks like Mayel Gave, she may have been inspired by another leader. We're talking about Whole Foods Market CEO and co-founder John Mackey. We're going to get through this and probably a lot sooner than people think. Mackey's got a new book out, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Business Through Humanity. Jason, we're going to talk about that. That's coming up next. It's a fun conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. In the magazine this week, we've got another edition of Business Week Talks with John Mackey. He's CEO and co-founder of Whole Foods. Whole Foods, Jason, as you know, now in its third year as a part of Amazon. Well, John's got a new book out. It's called Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. We started off, though, talking about some of the challenges of the pandemic. 2020 is the weirdest year of my life. I don't know about you, but it's definitely the weirdest year. And I mean, Whole Foods has done a lot better than other businesses because we weren't we weren't shut down. We were an essential business, and and we we saw our sales go up and our online sales went way up. But it's been incredibly stressful on the company. Make no mistake about that. People didn't lose their jobs, but it's been uh, we, we have we've had to. Uh, go to f- f- mask for mm-hmm. everybody's wearing mask and we've had uh, we we haven't been able to connect with the team members as much because tra- you know lockdown not traveling not being able to visit the stores yeah. a lot of safety measures been put in place um, it's been you know we just did a cultural compass survey and we see that it's been very stressful on the team members so that has been a challenge for us but again less of a challenge for Whole Foods than many, like a restaurant owner who's more or less been put out of business. So very, very difficult times. And I will tell you, I am very much looking forward to COVID being done. Yeah. When that'll be, but it'll be, I'm going to be celebrating. (laughs) Along with everybody else, that's for sure. So John, I, I guess on the subject of your book and sort of synthesizing all of this, what's the key leadership lesson? Uh, coming through this, and we're not through it yet by any stretch, but what have you learned about leading? What have you learned about how to lead uh, in a situation like this? You mean it, uh, in COVID? In COVID. Uh, gosh, I mean, COVID is a great example of uh, how you can gr- learn and grow in a crisis. Mm-hmm. In a crisis, the general reaction people have when they're in crisis is to sort of Look for a safe place, a safe harbor, someplace that um, uh, they they're not going to be um, safe. But what, one thing I've learned is that in crisis, that's a great opportunity to learn and grow, and you have to lean into it. You have to kind of instead of going back to a safe place, you've got to open wider to see what lessons are there, and you have to face your fears. And uh, one of the things that I learned is that Whole Foods has a very deep culture because. Mm-hmm. We, we've been making cultural deposits for a long time, and but during COVID, we've been making a lot of cultural withdrawals. Mm. But we're not bankrupt because we've got so many deposits that have been made. However, as COVID goes on longer and longer, and we're not able to make more deposits and, and connecting with people, I just, you know, I mean, 
a company is ultimately about relationships and about trust and about partnership. And the hardest thing in COVID, I think, has been the difficulty, other than virtually, to connect with people. And uh, we, we read all about people working at home, and, uh, and a lot of corporations are not going to go back fully, but uh, I don't believe that. I mean, more people may work at home when COVID's over, but in reality, if you're going to maintain a culture, you have to have people connecting with each other, and there's no real substitute for doing that in person. So I've learned our culture is resilient, but I've also learned that it's, it, we, we, need, we need that personal connection, too. No, I think you're right about that. You know, Jason and I have had, John, so many different conversations because we're seeing certainly the financial community, it seems like, really stepping up and really kind of urging their teams to come back to work in New York City. But I think it's a comfort level and people are just not comfortable. And it's not that people don't want to be working with colleagues. Um, We're social creatures. But I think there is a fear. I mean, we, for most of us, right, we have never seen something like this. It's true. Um, and maybe people won't be comfortable until we have vaccination that people mm. feel safe and taking. But in truth, I think the uh, concept of herd immunity is it's beginning to work its way through the, the United States. It's worked its way through Sweden at this point. If you look at their recent death rates, they're just a few people a week. Now, not, not, not hundreds or thousands of people a day. It's three or four a week. So, we're going to get through this, and probably a lot sooner than people think. I, I'd be very surprised if a year from now we have not returned to semi-normalcy. Right. Not, and people will be afraid, but eh, as, as their friends go out and report back, hey, it's safe out there, Nobody's, people aren't getting sick, and, and people will start to tentatively venture out, probably being wearing masks more, but right. uh, and that might be a while before people are completely back. But they will be because we are who we are. We're social creatures. And, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, I had lots of friends, not lots, I had a few friends back in elementary school that got polio. Um, I want to ask you, John, I mean, here we are a few years in, you know, with Amazon. How's it going? What, what has worked really well for you? Yeah, it's going very well. Uh, a big merger between... Big companies uh, is a little bit like a marriage. I like that metaphor. Mm. And I mean, I've been married for 30 years, and I love my wife, and I love, you know, maybe 99% of everything about her, and 1% I'm not so fond of. And I think uh, a merger is similar. I mean, Amazon has a different culture than Whole Foods. We overlap in some areas, and uh, we love most things about Amazon, and they probably love most things about Whole Foods, but, you know, not everything. And and what's worked really well is Amazon thinks long-term, and they're enabling Whole Foods Market to think long-term. We've had three major price reductions. We're beginning a fourth. Um, They're making investments in technology for Whole Foods that I think will be transformative, although I'm sorry I can't talk about those. Mm -hmm. And they've been respectful of our culture. They haven't tried to just turn us into Amazon. So... If, if I that, the best way to answer that question is, if John, if you could do it all over again, would you make the same decision? And the answer is yes, we'd make mm. the same decision. It was the right decision for us. I have to tell you, a listener is writing in and said, could you just ask John Mackey, could they please, please, please open a Whole Foods in the Hamptons? 
in the Hamptons. Yeah, we've we've received a lot of requests for that. It's it's a very seasonal uh, sort of market out there, and uh, we'll get there eventually. There you go. See, that, well, that, the question answered. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I think our team was was curious about, is you know, you guys, Whole Foods. I spent a couple. Uh, I spent a. I did kind of a deep dive into your company a few years ago, and uh, with Walter Robb, uh, who was co CEO at the time. I spent time with uh, a forager. Just how you guys work with companies, support companies to help them build out either production, you know, so that they can, you know, once you find an item that you want in your stores, you guys have such a value system, you know. And, and you really stick to selling just certain types of things. And to be fair, if you go on Amazon, you can buy just about anything, um, it feels like, and that they'll sell just about anything to anyone. You know, how have those values clashed, if at all, you know, and how do you kind of get your head around that? I don't think those values have clashed. I mean, okay. I think you're right. Whole Foods is, we're very... Um, you know, we're very stakeholder-oriented. We care deeply about our suppliers. We partner with them. And we are proud of the fact that we work with lots of small producers and help them get distribution. And a lot of them grow with us over time, and they, they start out with one store and then one region and then multiple regions and then across the whole country, and and then maybe they sell their company or, or take it public. I mean, a great example recently was Vital Farms eggs. Whole Foods was the first customer Vital Farms ever had, and we we made a over time made a ten million dollar investment in their company as well. And they just did an IPO, and their and their market capitalization is one point four billion dollars right now. So it's that's a great example of working with a small supplier and mm-hmm. and helping them expand across the country, and and eventually they become a very very successful company in their own right. We pr- we pride ourselves on that. There's there's really Dozens and dozens and dozens of similar examples like that. And Amazon, you know, it, it's a different business than what Whole Foods is doing. They're, they're the retailer. They're the everything store. As you say, I, if I want something, I generally just go to my iPhone or my iPad or my computer, and I just call up Amazon. I order it, uh, and it comes, shows up usually within 24 hours. So that's an amazing thing Amazon does. It's it's changed all, most people's lives. It certainly has changed my life. Yeah. That's very different than what Whole Foods right. is doing. But Whole Foods is, you know, Amazon wants to be a bigger force in grocery. And uh, Whole Foods is key to helping them do that. Uh, so I think that's why they ultimately wanted to acquire us. So, John, you know, you're very thoughtful in, in your books, and, and this recent one is no example. I mean, I do wonder, what's ahead for you, there's been a lot of speculation that, you know, you could go on and keep writing books and you've executed this great, as you say, uh, new marriage between these two companies. And I'm only going to give you about 90 seconds to answer <laughs> this question. But what's next? Do, do you foresee that, that maybe you hand over the reins soon? You know, I like to think I read recently Warren Buffett. I, I read that Warren Buffett, he's in. He's, his 90% of Warren Buffett's wealth has been generated after the age of 65. Hmm. I would like to think that 90% of my contribution in the world will be generated after I'm 65. That's my, that's my goal. So I don't have any plans on leaving anytime soon from Whole Foods, but hey, you know, I'm getting older. Uh, we, all, we all have to pass from the scene eventually. And I'm, there are many other things. I'm a very much a doer. I have many projects in life I want to work on. 
That's Whole Foods Market CEO, co-founder John Mackey. You know, we talk all the time, Carol, about like, oh, a merger is sort of like a marriage. And he's like, no, seriously, it is like a marriage. <laughs> like, you got to work on it just like that. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. That was one of my favorite parts of the interview. I'm Carol Massler. More ahead in our next hour, including PBS President and CEO Paula Kerger. They're getting ready for a big anniversary. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We're talking K-shaped recovery with economist Ali Wolf. We'll also hear from PBS president Paula Kerger on pivoting with the likes of Ken Burns during the virus. And this uh, reopening in New York means so much. Friend to the show, Chef Daniel Ballou, New York City, dining out again. He joins us. First up, though, we've got to get to a story in the magazine. And this had to do with the Cleveland Clinic. It hosted the debate this week. Cleveland Clinic, Jason, it's thriving, but it's black neighbors. They are not. We caught up with Bloomberg News senior trade and globalization reporter Sean Donnan and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Sean has spent um, a fair amount of time going to places um, that I think are, are really important um, in part for the election, but also in part of the the bigger story that is sort of upon America right now. And Cleveland has actually figured into that uh, reporting a lot. This is sort of part two of a Cleveland uh, series that he's been working on, and it's specifically about the Cleveland Clinic, which is sort of a renowned uh, medical center. Um, but what's actually been interesting, and this kind of gets right to the heart of, of Sean's story, is as the clinic has thrived, basically the black neighbors and the black neighborhood that surrounds the Cleveland cl- Clinic has actually seen its health deteriorate. Sean, pick it up from there. What, what did you discover during your reporting? Yeah, so, I mean, the Cleveland Clinic is this world-leading uh, health institution. If you are going to get a heart bypass, this is probably where you want to go. It's the place where they really perfected it in the 1960s, and they've built a whole fortune, uh, a real uh, thriving business on the back of this. The Cleveland Clinic last year had $10.5 billion in revenues. Uh, it's going to open a new uh, hospital in London later this year. It's also in the Middle East. It's opening a new uh, hospital in China in, in, in the next couple of years. Uh, it's become this world-renowned institution, and it's also become a great example of what people talk about when they talk about the EDS and MEDS economic development model for cities. You know, after manufacturing left a lot of cities like like, like Cleveland, people were looking at alternatives, and, and they looked to education, and they looked to the healthcare sector, and we've seen institutions like the Cleveland Clinic thrive in recent decades. The problem is that you go to Cleveland, you step out uh, beyond the main campus there. It's 165 acres in the middle of Cleveland. Uh, and you walk not even a couple of blocks. You walk a block. And what you discover is you are in neighborhoods that have some of the highest poverty rates in the nation. And where a kid who's born today is gonna, it has a life expectancy that's 20 years less than a, a kid who is uh, who was born a 15-minute drive away. And that really, right now, in the middle of an economic crisis, illustrates this kind of American paradox that we have in terms of inequality. You can have world-beating institutions like the Cleveland Clinic, and right next door you can have black neighborhoods that are just uh, really 
just being left behind. There's no other way to describe it. All right. So describe to us, though, what the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic told you. I mean, I got to read the quote. Cleveland is in our name, he says, but we cannot thrive as an organization unless the communities in which we reside thrive with us. So there they see it front and center. How are they dealing with it? What are they doing to, doing to change this you know, conversation? Right. So that CEO, Tom Mihaljevic, is a, a Croatian-born heart surgeon who took over as the CEO of the clinic in 2017. And he says he has made raising up the neighborhoods around the Cleveland Clinic one of, the, one of his priorities. And he's recognizing tacitly by doing that that they haven't done enough in the past to do that. And so they're starting, and we should say they're starting slowly, to, in, to invest in different things, uh, whether it's uh, adding to their work in community health centers. And there's a big project that's about to get launched right next door to the Cleveland Clinic. It's a project called Innovation Square. It's being run by Community Development Corporation there. It's going to cost about $300 million over the next five years to really redevelop a neighborhood and bring back grocery stores, because we're talking about food deserts right right around the clinic there, uh, bring back new, ho- new housing there. And the Cleveland Clinic says it's going to get involved in that project. We don't know how much, but we need to put that all in perspective at the same time. So we're getting this kind of goodwill from the Cleveland Clinic, but there's this $300 million project next door, and you put that in the context of of the business that is the Cleveland Clinic. Over the next five years, if they keep going the way they've been going, they're going to make something like $50 billion mm-hmm. in revenues. Wow. That entire three $300 million project is 0.6% of revenues. They're also sitting on $1.5 billion cash in hand at the end of June, which means that they could effectively just write a check for this entire project, and, and, and they're not. So it's, it's a complicated story. It's, 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 it's tough because the, the, the institution is recognizes the problem. It clearly is trying to do something, but there's big questions about whether they're doing enough. So, Sean, synthesize this with some of the other work you've been doing, because there is a political undercurrent to all of this. You are describing one of the key economic questions of this entire presidential race and this election year in many ways. All these things that have been laid bare by not just the coronavirus crisis, but this overdue reckoning with race and inequality in America. How does this fit in with some of the other things you've seen as you've been doing reporting about some similar places that illustrate inequity in this country? Yeah, well, look, I mean, we, we know that President Trump was riding at what he considered a healthy economy into, uh, into this election year and that the pandemic upended all that. But what the pandemic really did was it shone a spotlight on these real structural inequalities in the American economy right now. And that was Bloomberg News senior reporter Sean Donnan and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. The Cleveland Clinic, Carol, a bit of a theme developing here in this hour. We're talking a lot about the K-shaped recovery. We are indeed, and we've got two guests coming up on that, really looking at some of the systemic economic problems in our society. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
We're back here on Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly. And Jason, two interviews that really got to the heart of our systemic economic problems. One was with an economist. She watches housing and the consumer. She talked a lot about the K-shaped recovery. She did. We're talking about Allie Wolf and that K-shaped You and I have really been leaning hard Mm -hmm. into this. We spent a lot of time with Peter Atwater. He coined the term, Allie Wolf, she needs the data to figure out how to model where we are, but also where we're going. Check it out. As we do look at the data, the economy is holding up. I know that there's a lot of talk that it's losing momentum, but it is holding up all things considered. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. And as Jay Powell said at his press conference, we're learning to live with the virus. And as I talk to some of my coworkers across the country, they say life, depending on where you live and depending on how you're thinking about the virus, looks pretty normal. Hmm. But the concern at this point is that the easy gains have been made. Uh, As you mentioned with the jobs, yeah, we're still adding jobs, but we're 11.5 million people shy of February in the labor force. And that doesn't account for the 3.7 million people that have just ultimately left the labor force since February. And that's one of the biggest things because a lot of people are stepping out for childcare reasons. So let's talk about something that we have talked a lot about on this program, and I, I'm dying to get your take on it, Allie, which is the K-shaped recovery. It, it When you said uh, something a minute ago about sort of depends on who you are, where you live, what your job is, that calls to mind this idea of the K-shaped recovery. Give me your reaction to that notion and that description of this recovery that we're in, whatever it may look like. The K-shape is the reason we do not have another stimulus deal. Because if you look at the stock market and you look at the unstoppable housing market, there are parts of the economy that why do you need to give them additional money? And I think a lot of economists, myself included, said, oh, gosh, watch for the end of July. We're going to really see the economy tank. And it's held up, all things considered. So that's been one of the biggest issues. But as we're seeing today, Pelosi and and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin are looking at maybe getting closer to a stimulus deal. But they have to be careful because I agree with the Republicans. We don't need another two to three trillion because we already have trillions of dollars sloshing around in the economy. But I agree with the Democrats that it needs to be targeted, because if you're in a K-shaped recovery, don't keep giving money to top half of the K and expecting a different result. You need to make sure that that bottom half of the K is getting the right money when they really need it. Well, how important, and let's talk about this, that bottom part of the K, how important is it ultimately to the U.S. economy? We, you know, ad nauseum talk about the importance of small business uh, owners and small Mm -hmm. businesses to our economy. You know, are we providing enough aid for that part of our economy? No, we're not providing enough aid right now. Mm. And I think another one of the issues is if you look at the savings rate, if you were in the bottom half of the K and you were getting that extra $600 federal federal stimulus, we know the stats, about 60% of people were earning more money by being on that unemployment insurance. They've been able to save some of their money. So when you look at the personal savings rate, that looks okay But that's going to start coming down. And that's coming down partly because the top half of the K is going out and spending money, but partly because the bottom half of the K is now starting to run out. They're starting to tap into their savings accounts, and that's not unlimited. That's not going to go on indefinitely. So we have to look at uh, what's the top up to the unemployment insurance. I know there's that joke about the lazy economy giving the 600. So, okay, fine, do the 300. But make sure you're also giving money to the state and local governments, to small businesses, to people on the rent and mortgages so they don't end up homeless. 
So there still is, just needs to be a really, really targeted effort. What happens if we don't get that? What, what does it look like and how soon do we see it, Allie? Well, the economy is going to backpedal, but it's not going to happen that quickly. Uh, again, that's kind of been the lesson learned to all of us is yeah. when you throw $3 trillion into an economy that only slowed for two months, that actually can keep you going for a while. So I don't think we're going to see that backpedal. We'll see the savings start to go down. We'll see the amount of people unable to pay their rent or pay their mortgage start to increase. But that's going to be a slow burn maybe the next six months. That was Ali Wolf, chief economist at Myers Research. And Jason, another interview that we had this week that got into what ails our economy, it was with Roger Martin, professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at University of Toronto. He has a pretty cool new book out. He does. It's called When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. You and I gravitated to this, Mm -hmm. and even more so once we got to talking to him, because he's a very lively guy and really willing to kind of put it out there that we're all trying to figure this out. For the first 200 years of American history, uh, the median family, the average family in, in America, in almost all years, moved forward smartly economically. Uh, And that changed around 1976, the bicentenary, so that uh, middle incomes have stagnated terribly for uh, 40 years, a greater stagnation than America has has ever seen. So that family that thinks that its children aren't going to be better than they are is getting closer to more right than wrong if they are a average family in America. So that's the problem. And, And I think what that leads people to start questioning is, is this system working for us or is it just working for a very small tail end of the the distribution of high income uh, folks so that's what the, the book is about saying why that's happened what's changed uh in the in the last uh, this last period this last 40 ish uh years and what we can do about it it's not as though this has always been been the way no something changed and what changed was we got so obsessive about efficiency uh, about getting the last drop of efficiency out of whatever system in the economy we were thinking about. So Carol loved both of those conversations. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, you're the economist in this duo. You really understand this stuff much more holistically. But those two, I feel like, are really bringing it to the masses like yeah. me, helping me understand kind of the data side of this, but also these disparities, these disparities that we know about, once you can measure them, then maybe you can start to fix them. But they're also both talking about things that maybe we're just looking at it wrong for a long time. Exactly. That's a really great point, Jason. And the thing is, the data is they are showing that these gaps, these inequalities are just increasing. We're not fixing it. We're not figuring out ways to make it better. I mean, I feel like that conversation we had with Bloomberg reporter Ben Steverman last week, you know, talking about the Harvard economist as well, who's looking at this specifically and coming to the conclusion that basically, you know, kids are not going to be in a better situation than their parents, which was a long held belief. So what these two got to is how to think about the economy differently. How do we get on a better path? You can check out both of those conversations in their full form on our podcast feed. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week and still ahead. Everything that public broadcasting learned over its first 50 years have come to bear over the last six months. PBS is celebrating a big milestone, but how are they pivoting when there is so much competition for content? We'll hear from the network's president and CEO. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, whether it is PBS Kids, whether it's cooking shows, whether it is documentaries that change the way we think about American history, feels like we all have a relationship with PBS. That's so true, Jason. This is a broadcaster that's been part of our life for half a century. They are now getting ready for the next 50 years. We talked about that with the CEO and president of PBS. She is Paula Kerger. October 4th uh, will be our 50th anniversary. That is the day, October 4th, 1970, that we signed on the air as a national system with Julia Child and the French chef. And when when you think about it, you know, think about the world before Julia Child. You know, there was really no, you know, there was, I mean, there were some cooking shows, I guess, but she changed the way that we thought about food. You know, that um, she changed the way that, you know, French cuisine, which which seems so, you know, fussy, could be pretty accessible. And, you know, it's OK if that chicken falls off the counter, you know, you just wipe it off and you keep going. And I think that and, and that personality, um, it just, you know, it's one of the she's one of the people that I think really defined us. You think about Fred Rogers and Ooh. Fred is having. Uh, he's had an amazing year, um, you know, as people have really thought about what he meant to them. You know, the fact that he could look into the into the camera and you felt that he was looking at you, telling you that you were special and really encouraging you to be yourself. And you think about, you know, as you flash forward, all of the different personalities. So we thought that that's how we would celebrate the 50th. And uh, and then the the. Um, pandemic hit. And suddenly we were not thinking about 50 years and celebration. We were really thinking about the public service piece of who we are. That's what the P and the S and PBS stands for. And what we could be doing during this time. And I have talked to our stations. I've talked to others involved with public broadcasting. And I've said to them, and I I believe this uh, to the very center of my soul, that everything that public broadcasting learned over its first 50 years have come to bear over the last six months Mm. and that we were built for this moment with the children's programming that we have put together that's all built around core curriculum with the work that we've done with teachers in classrooms that we distribute through broadband used to be just through teachers now to families who are taking up lesson plans and trying to figure out how to engage kids with the trusted news content that we've built up through the extraordinary journalism of people like Jim Lair and Gwen Ifill and Charlene Hunter-Galt and all of the people, Judy Woodruff now, Amna Nawaz, all of the people that have gone into building the news hour as a trusted source for, for fact and information, to um, the, the documentary programs that we've created over the years. You know, when the baseball season was delayed, Ken Burns called me and said, why don't we put baseball up? Why don't we make right. it available? Um, and, and he said, and as we talked, he said, let's look at the pro- the kinds of programs that I've produced that are in my library that would have been on the kids' curriculum, you know, for the spring. And maybe we should find some programs that, you know, could help remind us all of those times when we came together and, you know, we discovered our own better angels. So we thought about the, the Roosevelt's and the World War II documentary and the National Parks documentary, America's Greatest Idea. And then, you know, and then George Floyd was murdered. And we suddenly found ourselves looking at, okay, what can we produce? But what is, what is in our library that we can bring forward that can help people understand where we came from? How did we get to this place? 
looking at everything from Skip Gates' recent series on Reconstruction, going back to the great Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize. And so all of the work that we've been doing over these last months, leveraging our library, but also creating new content and building on relationships and the trust that we've built, has all brought us here. And I think this is the best way to celebrate our 50th anniversary is actually being in service to the public. Hey, Paula, one thing I wanted to ask you is the content that is out there today, there is so much of it, thanks largely to the explosion of streaming services. We got just a few new ones, really, kind of in the last year. There was a time when it was only PBS, it felt like, that did those deep dives, uh, did those documentaries, um, did those really thoughtful series, you know, and now there are others doing it. And I just wonder, how does that change your focus or PBS's focus or how you plan for the future and how you compete in a world where everybody's competing for all of our eyeballs? You know, so we've been down this path before, um, obviously, when we moved from an environment where there was just broadcast television into a plethora of cable channels. And, uh, you know, there was a time when so many of the of the upcoming cable channels were really designed on, you know, trying to emulate or copy public broadcasting. And that's PBS president and CEO Paula Kerger. I have to say one of my favorite parts of that interview was the quick flex where she's like, yeah, there's a pandemic going on. I got a call from Ken Burns. He's like, remember that amazing thing that I did? Why don't you show that? Listen, PBS, like so many others, Jason, learning to pivot and provide content that made sense during the pandemic. Tougher to pivot, though, restaurants. They have been among the hardest hit during the virus. We're going to hear from one of the best-known names in the industry. We're talking about Danielle Ballou. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, it was a big week for New York City restaurants after a six-month pandemic-induced shutdown. Restaurants in the city, they were allowed to reopen indoor dining with some restrictions on capacity, and it's going to still make it really tough for them to run financially. And we've gotten to check in a number of times throughout the pandemic with Danielle Ballou, mm-hmm. one of the best-known chefs in the world. Here's what he had to say. This reopening in New York means so much because uh, we have been stranded for eight months with no restaurants uh, inside. Uh, thanks God the city opened up the streets and gave the opportunity to have a sidewalk cafe. Uh, we did our best with that at uh, Restaurant Daniel with Daniel Bully Kitchen. And uh, the reopening inside at 25%, I felt that I wanted to also try to set up a mood which was maybe a little different, a little more disrupting, and, and, and maybe a theme where I didn't get a chance to go to the south of France this summer, mm. and every year I go to France, and I always go to the south of France, but so is many, many Americans, and, you know, destination, vacation, uh, the Mediterranean always make people dream, so I felt that I should do a restaurant who express a little bit of a journey to the Mediterranean through the flavor of the dishes and through the mood of the restaurant. So we transformed the restaurant into Boulis-sur-Mer. Boulis-sur-Mer means Boulou by the Sea as my last name. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. And so, Danielle, I mean, what's been so interesting in, in sort of keeping up with you throughout this is that this has obviously challenged you as as a chef in, in many ways, but it's really challenged you, I feel like, 
as a businessman in many ways and as a manager it, of your people. So tell us about some did. of the sort of key decisions that you felt like you had to make for your business. Of course. I mean, it did. As uh, We all locked down and all my colleagues locked down. Uh, little by little, we started initiative to bring back our staff. And um, about a month and a half after lockdown, uh, we started uh, Food First. Uh, foundation, an initiative with SL Green, my new partner in a new restaurant, Le Pavillon at One Vanderbilt. And he wanted to really help me start to make meals for New Yorkers and bring back some of my staff in the kitchen. But he also wanted to help many of his tenants around town to be able to reopen their kitchen and support their tenant through uh, Food First. And mm. to date, we have distributed almost 400,000 meals gifted to many, many charities, including City Meal on Wheel, and uh, in New York and World Central Kitchen at the beginning of our mission, and, and uh, Barry, uh, Barry Mission as well. And, and they were, I think that was the first initiative. Then from that, we did the takeout at Restaurant Daniel. Mm-hmm. And then we opened the terrace at Barboulou and Daniel, and uh, through Daniel Boulou Kitchen uh, takeout division as well. And uh, today we are open inside, and it felt very good last night. Uh, I feel that people are still a little anxious, and there is a mix of anxiety and excitement in uh, for us as reopening inside. But at, at the same time, we make sure, and you know, it, it gave us a chance to bring back more staff. So, so from great. 750 employees we had, we had now up to 200 plus, and that's really growing. So it's good. It's a good sign. And we haven't reopened all our restaurants, only, you know, the West Side, Barboulou, and Danielle. And Danielle, let's talk about New York City and specifically Midtown, if we can. Carol and I, in normal world in the before times we went to midtown manhattan literally every day we would do our show from there we were denizens of of that you know into the evening and so many people uh who we know are like that what is midtown like now what do you expect it's going to be like over the next six to nine to twelve months well uh i think over the next six months it will improve as uh i think many institutions uh bank and other institutions have maybe mandated their staff to stay home until the end of the year and uh, coming back in uh, January 2021. So some of the company have already bring back, uh, brought back staff on, on alternative uh, schedule. Now, I mean, of course, New York will come back. New York, it's evident and some people may have lost their job, lost stability in New York and had to leave town. But for the most part, the town might be a little deprived right now of uh, its worker, but they're going to have to come back to work uh, because no company can run at a distance like this forever. And um, I believe that, you know, by spring 2021, even after the holiday, uh, New York should come back strong. I mean, we feel that there's a lot of New Yorker back, but they they come back they they go back and forth uh, right now we feel and um i am positive new york city is new york city and uh i think it will take more than covid to make it really uh, a a challenge city but we have um 
we have a restaurant midtown and because of broadway we if we don't have the culture if we don't have the art if we don't have the tourists mm-hmm. it's abused and the town is also suffering and so hospitality in general hotels and restaurants are suffering and um and we need also the workers back to really have this life during lunch midtown so um, i am positive we are opening a restaurant in midtown at 42nd and 1 Vanderbilt next year. Is that Pavilion? Le Pavilion Le at Pavilion. 1 Vanderbilt. Sorry. And, <laughs> and I'm positive that, uh, you know, it will be a good time to open a restaurant in the spring of 21. And at the same time, we have taken all the measures possible to make sure that people feel that they are in a very safe environment. And... Um, you know, it, so, it has well, been um, a pride for most. Let me ask you, because I can't tell you how many people we have come on, and even real estate guys are like, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's like, everybody's leaving New York City. Everybody's leaving these major cities, and so on and so forth. I mean, I've been in New York City a long time, too, and I've heard the demise of the big cities over and over again. How do you mm-hmm. see it? I, I see it, and a lot of people, as I say, feel very stressed right now and feel comfortable being out. But they're going to be so bored and so missing out with everything that <laughs> I think they'll be back to New York. And, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker at heart. And if I'm going to leave the city, where am I going to go? Back to France in my small village? Right. Um, I don't know. But I'm, I'm also, I've been a New Yorker involved with the community and involved with my profession and having an incredible support from our customer, and we still feel it. We still get it. I mean, our customers are so positive and so happy that we are here and we are continuing. Then I can see I can see them coming back all the time. Are they going to spend as much time in New York City than they used to? Maybe less, but they still come back and support us. And so, Danielle, what is something like this do to the next generation of chefs coming up? You know, I mean, you have seen so many promising chefs sort of come through your kitchens and the kitchens of your friends. I do wonder uh, about this next generation and how they will adapt and and what advice you might be giving them. And and many young chefs left me to go to smaller cities around the country and it has been struggling challenge for them too, uh, wherever they are, uh, in uh, in Minnesota or in California or in uh, in Florida or other parts in Texas. It, it's uh, it's not easy to um, it's not easy to start a business and then to you know when you when you start your new place you have debt you have uh, you. You you might do very well, but you have to pay back uh, the investment. And right. I think for young uh, for young chef who want to start a business, uh, what's important is to not be in debt to the point where they can never pay back or lose their business. Now, for young chef learning to cook, I think um, there's there's going to be opportunity in the food business, maybe different than what they envision. But uh, for me, we have been very creative at expanding into other direction in in the food world, such as uh, national distribution with Gold Belly of Daniel Buru Kitchen for dishes for home. So that brought me, it gave me a chance to bring more staff. Mm. We do also the takeout in New York City with Daniel Buru Kitchen, and that brought me more staff. Mm. 
and um, expanding into catering, more catering. I have a catering company, but we're expanding into more services like that. And so I think uh, we try to stay very creative, very engaged with opportunity that may be needed right now and may change later. And that's Chef Danielle Ballou. Of course, his eponymous restaurant here in New York City. It is a beacon in many ways. He's been pivoting like crazy. Really good to catch up with him. Yeah, and check out also Kate Crater, who is our food editor for Pursuits here at Bloomberg. Uh, She has some great stories this week about the industry and the sector trying to reopen up. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to check out our daily radio show. That's Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And you can hear all of our fun conversations from that show and from this show wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure, while you're on that podcast feed, to check out this week's extra podcast. It's our conversation with Joe Lonsdale. Very timely. He's a co-founder of Palantir. He worked at PayPal as well. We talked to him on the day that Palantir went public. That's right, Jason. A great story and great insight about kind of where we are when it comes to the tech world. Don't forget, too, we're also on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now. And we'll see you next week right here at the same time. This is Bloomberg.